Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. And welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kiban. Great to be with you here this fabulous afternoon. Last week we talked about the process of mourning and the, the challenges related to it, how everyone mourns differently and how people need the space to grieve. And we went through part of the mourning process, which includes, as we described last week, the state of Onen, when one is just learning, discovered of the deceased of their loved one. And that time until the burial and then from the interment, the period of seven days of Shiva. And then we discussed Shloshim, the 30-day mourning period, which starts from the point of burial until 30 days later, and then finally, the yard site. And th- it's important for us to acknowledge that people at the end of the day are going to grieve, are going to mourn differently. For some people, they need, whether it's Shiva, in fact, we discussed last week that the Shiva process itself, there's the first three days which are more intense, and then from there, the next days aren't as difficult. For every person, the pain of losing a loved one never fully disappears. And I'm speaking from experience as one who unfortunately lost both of my parents. But nevertheless, the idea that pathological mourning is not what God wants from us is important to acknowledge as well. And the mourning is most intense when it's raw, when it's fresh. If our feelings haven't fully caught up to where we are in the mourning timeline, then we need to focus our energies on moving on to the next stage. And of course, if there's any medical concerns, if one is depressed, one should seek medical attention, one should talk with a medical professional and see what they can do to not be stuck in that space of grief. Here in the community, we're lucky to have many psychotherapists who could help you through that process. As part of Hatsala, where I served as a medic for the last 10 years, we have our CRU, our Crisis Response Unit, where we respond to particular cases where there's greater trauma and we try to offer whatever therapy we can to help the people get through the process. But if a person's stuck there, then they need to seek professional help and they need to see what they could do to find the comfort in order to move on. I think of great organization one should be in contact with would be Nechama. It's a wonderful organization offered by the Heber Kadisha here in our community that helps people through the grieving process. So it's important that we recognize that the the process of mourning is different for each person, and at the same time, one cannot be stuck in that space. And last week, we also discussed the idea of the eternal nature of the soul, the fact that our relationship with our loved ones, even if they've passed on, still continues. And the fact that the soul is now enjoying its relationship with God, basking in the spiritual heavenly realm, is something we have to also appreciate. And it's important that we realize from a Torah, from a Jewish perspective, that life doesn't end with death. It's just the relation, it's a relation shift. It's a different way. So what are the traditional words of comfort that you say to somebody when you go visit them during a time of mourning? In fact, one could say it all the way through Shloshim, all the way through the 30 days. And the words, you're probably familiar with them, is, that may God, and we refer to God in this context as Hamakom, 
What does Hamakom mean? Hamakom means the space. It's one of the names that we refer to God with. We say that the true Nechama, the ultimate consolation, ultimately only comes from God. In a sense, only when Mashiach comes will we experience the real true comfort and consolation when we're reunited with our loved ones. But perhaps to get a little bit Kabbalistic with you, let me share with you that the squared gematria of the letters of the tetragrammaton, in the name of God, is 186. Okay, let's do it together. God's name, as we know it, Yudke Vavke, 10. What's 10 times 10? Okay, now help me out here. Plus 5 times 5, right? Because it's a hey. So you get the Yud, which is now 100. The he, the the hey, which is five times five, okay, plus so you got twenty five there, plus what's the next letter vav, vav is six six times six we got thirty six, so now you have a hundred and twenty five plus thirty six, and what's the last letter of the tetragrammaton of God's name? That's right, it is a hey, so you got here one hundred for the yud, plus the. Five times five of the twenty of the hey, that's one twenty-five. Plus you got the six times six of the vav, that's thirty-six. So you're holding that one sixty-one. Now add again another twenty-five from the hey, and your total is one hundred and eighty-six. Now that's the same gematria, the numerical value as the word makom, referring to hamakom, Hashem, who fills all spaces of the earth, will fill the void of the individual. So that's another interesting insight. Here's something from Taurus Menachem. The teachings of the Rebbe says the Nechama has to come from the level of godliness that is relevant to the worlds, to the Olamos, and therefore could relate to the pain of the Avel, of the one morning. It has to be one that is related to that level of godliness. Now, why is this name used when we're attempting to console a mourner, why are we saying, why don't we just say straight out, God should come for you? In fact, if you say it in English, you do. But in Hebrew, you're saying, Hamakom. And when a person experiences a loss, they don't perceive God's revealed goodness. So we say to them, Hamakom, that this too is from God. Although it's concealed, it's a, it's a name of God that is not a revealed name of God. Now, oftentimes people ask me, what on earth does this phrase mean? How does it offer comfort to the mourner? And perhaps only with explanation does it do that consolation, that solace, because on its own, it seems to just be, what does Zion, Jerusalem have to do with one's individual, private, personal mourning for their loved one? And there's a few fascinating insights. Firstly, tonight is Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av. And we, of course, begin the morning process as those who were tuned in to Rabbi Katz's radio show yesterday. You got to hear all of the details of how we are to conduct ourselves over the coming nine days. Now, the first thing we're telling the mourner is that ultimately the ability to find comfort, Hamakam, God, God is in charge of the world. God is the ultimate true judge. And there's nothing we could possibly say that actually could truly comfort a person. It's only from above that we're given the ability to find that comfort, that consolation in our lives. Time doesn't necessarily heal. God is the ultimate healer. So that is the first point of Hamakom. 
and we're acknowledging God's control and God's presence. God is the true judge of the universe. But Zion and Jerusalem, as people always often wonder, what has that got to do with their personal individual mourning? And again, we discussed here the mourning of our nation over the destruction of Zion and Jerusalem, which really seems to be irrelevant to a mourner. But if you consider it on a deeper level, you'll realize that even physical matter, we know, is indestructible. If you look at the temple, which was destroyed 1,941 years ago by the Romans, but nevertheless, it was only the physical form of the temple. The bricks and mortar. But the actual, the soul, the spirit of the temple, the mikdash ma'at, endures forever. And in that very same sense, we could realize that the soul as well is immune to the forces that deteriorate the physical. Of course, the physical body is no longer. It's going to disintegrate. It's going to be gone. Death might spell the end of our physical existence experience in this world, but our spiritual self, our soul, that we know lives on, is not in any way diminished by death of the body. So when we talk about the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem, we're drawing a parallel, we're alluding to the that the idea that we mourn the physical destruction of Jerusalem, but we're comforted by the thought of its spiritual indestructibility. And we regard every individual who might pass on. We're mourning for their physical absence, but we also acknowledge that the soul continues to exist. It's immortal. Of course, how many years has it been since the destruction of the temple? How many years has Tisha B'Av been commemorated as a national day of Jewish mourning? So long. We've not forgotten. And we remind our, the people we're comforting as well, that through all these years, their loved one will never be forgotten. Because it is you, their children, their descendants, who will continue to perpetuate their memory and their legacy by doing good deeds, by studying Torah, by perpetuating their memory in whatever way you can do so. You will ensure that just as our temple's never forgotten, so too the individual will never, ever be forgotten. There's two more points that the Rebbe expressed in his letter to Ariel Sharon when he was mourning for his son. Two we pointed out was the indestructibility of the body. We spoke about the amount of years, the time. But also remember, everyone, every Jew mourns for Zion and Jerusalem. As unfortunate and as dichotomized and split as we are today, and we have so many Jews who unfortunately don't support the present day state of Israel, but they still observe the Tisha B'Av. They still commemorate. They still say in their prayers, Bone Baracham of Yerushalayim. They still say, Lashana Habab Yerushalayim. We still, all Jews acknowledge and take part in our feelings towards Jerusalem, towards Israel, to Zion. So in that sense as well, it's something that all of us take part in the mourning because it's a part of the community and that's what we're mourning. It's a part of the community. When someone passes on, it's one of us. And final point for this segment is we pray for the coming of Mashiach and for the revival of the dead. And then we'll be reunited with our loved ones when they'll be resurrected. So of course, 
that is also a significant matter to be considered. So four points here of why we say that Hashem should come from them amongst the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. I said we'll talk a little bit about the healing process, how people should not be stuck in the grief and the sorrow. And in an ideal situation, a person going through the process of mourning will with time find the inner strength to continue living a healthy and happy life. You know, God actually instilled within us resiliency, that we're able to live a fully functioning life regardless of the circumstance, regardless of what's going on in our lives. But as I said before, there are times that people who experience a loss, they just don't see the possibility of moving on. I would say this is probably all the more so when it's a premature death, when it's someone who died before their prime. And this is not what the Torah was commanding that when we mourn, that the mourning should, one should stay in a cycle of mourning. So obviously one shouldn't judge somebody who's in that situation. But as I said earlier, one should firstly try to seek medical attention. But maybe today in our remaining time, we could try to analyze the pain of people that they're feeling when they lose a loved one. And hopefully, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you won't find that anytime soon. But the word pain is a very general word. And it includes many different specific types of feelings. And you got to ask yourself, you know, what kind of painful feelings come to a person who loses a loved one? And the truth is, every person might answer that question differently. There are so many different responses. Talking with the psychologist, the Chavar Kadisha, they'll tell you from sadness to anger to guilt People feel a sense of injustice, sadly depression, denial. Denials are very, very common and popular one. Hopelessness. So people have all types of feelings and deal with and relate to their loss in their own unique way. And one of the common feelings that of injustice is especially true when, like I said, somebody who perhaps is young. You know, when it's a 90-something-year-old person who dies, they fell asleep, you know, peacefully in their sleep or something like that. It's one story. When it's somebody who is young and dies of the big C, it's a different story. Obviously, even with an elder person, I'm not going to in any way negate the pain and the loss. Last year, I was dealing with a family who lost their 109-year-old matriarch. And indeed, there was pain and suffering and, cr- and crying. But it's very different. It's a pain of sadness, a pain of loss, right? A dear individual was part of their lives for that long is gone. Obviously, there's a void. There's, there's that space that we mourn for the loss. But at the same time, that pain doesn't usually consume us. Right, this in, sen- in, a, in a sense, maybe even a comforting feeling. We could celebrate the deceased's life and achievements. On the other hand, God forbid, when somebody dies at a young age, there's so many other feelings. Why? Why did? Why did he deserve that? Right? Why did they have to die so young? And all the different feelings that are attached to it. For an elderly person, 
we feel that they had a nice, good, long, fulfilling life. So, of course, the pain could, could be painful and, and all the other feelings. But when a younger person is gone, we really feel like they haven't had the chance to fulfill, to finish their mission, their purpose here in this world. So, that's something that really has to be taken into consideration that really each scenario, each situation is definitely one different from the other. The Gemara tells an example of Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai that when he lost a child at a young age and the different rabbis came to comfort him, it was finally the student who told him the idea that every human being is a deposit from God in this world. And the metaphor that was employed to him was that only once he fulfilled his mission and purpose did God take back that deposit, that collateral. And I think, of course, everyone's different. Everyone finds comfort in different ways. I don't know if one story in the Gemara could any in any way... Uh, heal somebody's pain. But I do think that this little story about life being a deposit is quite an interesting metaphor that we can learn from because everything that we have, the truth is not just our lives, I'm talking about our talents, our opportunities, everything we achieve and accomplish in this world, it all belongs to God. We know that we have to give the credit where it's due. We start with zero. And whatever we're given, whether it's one day or 120 years, whether it's a healthy and functioning body or, God forbid, more limited health and abilities, it's all a blessing of God. We have to cherish and appreciate that which we have. So if we see our lives as something that belongs to us, as something we inherently deserve, we feel entitled then of course we feel cheated and robbed by the death of something that's rightfully ours. We experience feelings of anger, of injustice, because we compare what we have been given against what we think we should have been given, or against what others have been given, because we always got to keep up with the Joneses and compare to others. You know, if a person lives a long, healthy, fulfilling life, right, hopefully, please God, you got nachas, all the different accomplishments and achievements of life, and then, 120, they return their soul. Of course, we don't consider that a tragedy. But if the normal human lifespan were 240 years, of course we would cry because it's a tragedy that somebody was taken in the prime of their life. Now, the other way around, if you were to think for a second, if the typical human being lived only 20 years, and the truth is, a century or two ago, lifespan was much shorter than it is today. Then somebody dies at 30, God forbid, but if lifespan is only 20, then that person we would say enjoyed a long, fruitful, good life. But when we recognize that every moment of life, regardless of how many years, without comparing it to others, if we realize that it's all a deposit, a gift from God, then I think our entire perspective changes. Because we recognize that we're given what we truly require to accomplish our purpose in life. And we appreciate that our feelings... You don't need to have that anger or jealousy comparison to other people. It's misguided then. We have a hold of an attitude, not one of entitlement, but one of gratitude. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life.
And welcome back. A moment ago, we talked about the idea that life indeed is a deposit. Whatever we get is fair and just. Life is not ours to be taken from us. And if we don't have that feeling of entitlement, then in fact, we'll appreciate every moment that we are granted. But there's another point as well that the Gemara tells us there, which is that Rabbi Elazar, who was comforting Rabbi Yochanan Mazaka, spoke about his son as a real pious and righteous individual, one who read the Torah, the prophets, the holy writings, studied the Mishnah, the laws, the ethical teachings, and he said to him, my friend, your son passed from this world without sin. And I think this is an extension of the other point about life being a deposit that is given to us for the exact amount of time necessary that we have to fulfill our purpose, our mission in this world. Of course, it's not an easy concept to relate with. And every individual is created for a specific mission, for a purpose. And we have our fixed a lot of time in this world. So indeed, in that sense, the terms of the deposit are in fact dictated by the mission. And a person who dies early, God forbid, according to this idea in the Gemara, has fulfilled their mission in this world. Of course, like I said, it's a very difficult topic to really relate to. In fact, we still say niktaf bidmeyamav, which means they've been really snuffed out in the midst of their life and their prime. But whether in, in that sense, whether a person dies of old age or young age, they both lived a fulfilling life as difficult as that really is. And it's, it's, again, it's, it's a complicated idea, but, uh, that is a concept explained in the Talmud. Now, there's another feeling that I know some people go through, and that's guilt, whatever it may have been. I, I know some people feel guilty that they didn't spend enough time with their d- deceased loved one. Even an elderly person, these feelings of guilt come in, or whatever their feeling may have been, maybe I could have been better to them, or why did I make whatever hurtful remark that now I can't take back or I should have visited or called more, whatever the, whatever the point is, there are people who have feelings of guilt. And, of course, we can't turn back the clock. We can't change the past. And whatever snide comment or insensitive behavior a person did, you know, you can't change it. But this guilt is not something the person has to live with or rather bog them down because we from the side that the deceased is on now where they could see truth it's a whole different world because the death like we said before doesn't terminate our relationship with our loved ones and perhaps from above they're able to forgive us perhaps they want us to ask for that forgiveness and there are people, I've seen it many times, go to a grave in the cemetery and seek forgiveness from a loved one. But like I said before, death doesn't change the relationship. It's just, as my good friend Herbie Rosenberg likes to say, it's a relation shift. And in that sense, gotcha bless Herbie, he's uh, been a community stalwart for many years and I love the line he once told me he said he did it, he didn't when he worked with the various organizations that he represented he wasn't fundraising but he was friend raising I love that term and in that sense when we lose a loved one it's a relation shift it's no longer physical 
but now it's more spiritual. And so it's never too late to improve our relationship with one who's gone from this world. Maybe when one says Kaddish and they're doing benefit for the Neshama, maybe it's at Yiskar, maybe it's the mitzvahs that we do, or the Torah study in their memory, or whatever good deed, whatever way we are perpetuating their memory. So we're able to sustain and even imp- even improve the relationship. We could really improve a relationship even after they're gone. To quote the words of Rabbi Aaron of Karlin, he said that when a person passes on, when the children say Kaddish, or God forbid if it's one without children, when Kaddish is said for them, it's like sending the deceased regards. And when they learn a chapter of Mishnayis on their behalf, it's like sending them a letter. And then when they do mitzvahs or good deeds, it's other benefits for the soul. It's like sending them a whole parcel. And he goes on to say that this, in a sense, that while we can't give anything physical to the deceased, and maybe that's perhaps why in the Jewish tradition we don't have as an elaborate ceremony as others do with their wakes, but we could still give them spiritual gifts because that's what really matters. That's what really counts. You know, when a child is born, parents always express their love for the child. We feed it, we clothe, we we look after our child, right? And then when the child gets older, the love language changes. What do they say? What's the difference between men and boys? It's the price of the toys. So... Obviously, the gift for a 10-year-old is not the same you're going to give an 18-year-old, etc. But when a person, when people pass away, the petty things that they once cared about, the little things that we get into faribles about, that's no longer significant. I think from the heavenly realm, a soul is more concerned with spiritual matters. And therefore, they're worried about the well-being of the loved one, about their children, and when we stay in that relationship with them, by connecting with them, fulfilling their spiritual needs, those that's what really counts, that's what really matters to them. So when the parent sees their children get, getting along, that's important to them. When they see them treating each other with love and respect, that brings tremendous nachas. It brings the soul great joy. Nothing gives greater pleasure to a soul than seeing their children, their loved ones, leading a moral and ethical life, one that's following the path of the Torah, the ways of God. So knowing that we could stay in a relationship with our loved ones and they could continue to feel and care that we, that their loved one is there for them, it's reciprocal. I think that could take away a lot of the guilt that people sometimes feel. So in summation, if we're able to internalize this concept, then it's not about guilt. You don't have to bear guilt. I know many people do, but it's unnecessary. Rather, we should channel our feelings in a positive way, in a way that's beneficial to the seeds, to the deceased, to, to ourselves, and to the world around us by doing what's right, by focusing on the right things to do. My dear friends, thank you for joining me here today on Soul to Soul. Wishing you a fabulous day, a meaningful Shabbos, and only good stuff always. Please God, we'll be back right here in Soul to Soul next week. Same time, same place.